Welcome to Spirit Matters. This is Phil Goldberg on behalf of me and my co-host, Dennis Ramundi. We're on hiatus now in the summer of 2022. So we're posting some interviews I recorded with leading spiritual teachers last year. They were part of a special series on Unity Online Radio under the title of my book, Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times. I'm sure you'll find them illuminating and inspiring. Enjoy. You can have inner peace and clarity even in the midst of chaos. Welcome to Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times with Phil Goldberg. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to this special series of programs. Our goal is to bring you expert advice and guidance for remaining spiritually secure and strong even in the most challenging times not just the unprecedented pandemic we've been going through together, but any time the trials and tribulations of our crazy world spring up in your life. Every episode features a wise, compassionate, experienced spiritual teacher whom I've drawn from a broad range of traditions and paths. So I encourage you to write down all the ideas that resonate with you so you'll have an inventory of practices to draw from whenever you need a spiritual boost and a way to reconnect with our divine source. We all have within us a sanctuary of peace, a fortress of strength, not something we have to find or build. It's already present at the core of our being as our truest, deepest, highest self. All the spiritual traditions have the primary purpose of helping us connect with that essential reality. And the more we do, the better equipped we are to face our challenges and take action to make the world a little less crazy. That said, let me introduce today's guest. Sally Kempton has been a widely respected teacher of meditation and spiritual wisdom for more than 40 years now a former journalist and a former Swami in a Vedic tradition. She's a contributing editor at Yoga Journal, the author of two terrific books, Awakening Shakti, The Transformative Power of the Goddesses of Yoga, and Meditation for the Love of It. She teaches online courses and will no doubt once again lead workshops in person when the restrictions are lifted. Her website, where you'll find a wealth of resources, is sallykempton.com. Welcome, Sally. Thank you, Phil, and it's lovely to be talking to you. And for me as well. So we're recording this on June 1st, 2021, as we slowly reemerge from the long pandemic. During this past year, what... What did you find most challenging, both for yourself and, and the students you no doubt continue to work with? Oh, very good question. I think for, for most of the people in my community, um, 
the challenges were not so much about getting sick because I, most people in my community, you know, had uh, were either able to stay home, um, you know, were in in many ways protected from the the ravages of the coronavirus. Uh, not everybody, you know, I had some students who who had close people die, uh, and. But I think the greatest challenges were had to do with, with what it is to stay home. You know, for, mm. that either either there are so many people in the house that you're dr- being driven crazy by your family, or you're by yourself, and uh, and I and so that it turned out to be a question for many people of navigating really basic human issues like how do you have good relationships with the people you live with such that you know, you're dealing with your conflicts without killing each other. And how do you deal with, with actual situational loneliness or existential loneliness? Mm. And, uh, you know, so it came down, I think, to people learning how to live in their hearts, how to, you know, to actually engage love in circumstances in which it's sometimes difficult, whether it's, you know, to, in order to be with, with other people or in order to be with yourself. So in the end, I, I believe for most of the people in my community, a lot of the challenge had to do with how you are with yourself, therefore, therefore how you're able to navigate you know, this unprecedented situation. Um, so for me, I, I mean, I actually, had a, actually, I actually had a pretty good time during the pandemic because I'm naturally... <laughs> I know, I know, I'm embarrassed. I know, uh, no, me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're, if you like solitude, I mean, I know that you're not in complete solitude, um, but if you like solitude, if you like, if you like less stress, you know, less external stress, there's something really wonderful about not having to go out of the house, not having to see people in person, only talking to the people you really want to talk to, and having a lot of time for practice and, self-inquiry uh yeah yeah so um and an excuse to say no for to an excuse to say (laughs) yeah yeah and uh and i and and also a way to just be comfortable with your own weirdness you know i mean to be really (laughs) honest yeah i this was the first long period of time in my life when i actually was able to just fully accept the, you know the, all the ways that I'm I'm weird and unusual, and uh, and in the ways that other people are weird and unusual, and there's a tremendous amount of of natural self-acceptance that was a f- part of the fruit of this for me for some reason. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Just, yeah, it was interesting. Yes, because I mean, you spent many years as a renunciate, but you were not alone all the time. No. Right. I mean, you were in a community which is, you know, can be very demanding in many in different ways. Um, how did you help the the people in your life, the students uh, who are not as comfortable being alone? Well, I taught a bunch of six week courses during the pandemic, and the this the subject of of most of them was um, Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. Mm-hmm. So we we took this time to go really deep into a, a set of yogic meditation practices, many of which were new to people, most of which involved getting very intimate and comfortable with your inner energy body and, and actually working with the mind. So 
uh, we were working with very classical yogic practices for witnessing the mind, for surrender, uh, you know, for actually uh, committing ourselves to making steady daily effort in meditation and taking that those those efforts into daily life. And they it was it was tremendously helpful to people to actually make that commitment to daily practice and mm. to do it in creative ways because you know when you really go into the the texts uh, the, the yoga texts um, what you discover is that that there are some practices which open up levels of experience that are that can be completely new and that you don't find when you're not experimenting with them so we did a lot of experimenting um, and and people said that made a huge difference I think partly because in my community people uh, people tend to be pretty willing to commit to deep spiritual work and you know as you said earlier pretty happy to have an excuse to do it mm. <laughs> you know? yeah you know, so so I mean yeah interesting and and so you were dealing with Patanjali's yoga sutras a lot um, so I have to ask what you did about uh, the city's portion of it Ah, um, which, well, which for people listening who don't know the word cities refers to uh, uh, what are often called supernormal powers or that sort of thing. Uh, yes, very good question. And and what Phil didn't say is that <laughs> generally speaking, uh, most commentators on the yoga, the Patanjali Yoga Sutras has this long list of supernatural powers that you can cultivate through particular practices. Um, they're for advanced meditators, uh, and uh, and they don't really give the instructions. So they'll you know they'll say by meditating on the heart, you you can or by by there's actually a practice, particular practice called samyama, mm -hmm. where you where you you know you combine uh, concentration, meditation and complete absorption, and if you if you have that capacity then then you can you know engage the cities so. So one of them says, by, by samyama on the heart, knowledge of past lives arises. Now, uh, I've never had that experience, and I do samyama on the heart a lot. Mm. But what I, what I came to feel is that uh, the city's chapters actually are useful in that they explain that we do have these innate powers, these innate supernormal powers that are natural to human beings and and whether or not you deliberately cultivate them, which, as you know, Patanjali, uh, Patanjali the commentators on Patanjali and everybody else in the Indian tradition says, you know, never cultivate cities. They're a bad idea. They take your mind away from your goal, from mm -hmm. your spiritual goal. And if cities should by any chance come to you, um, reject them, refuse to, to do them. So, uh, and, you know, that's a very sensible prescription, especially when applied to advanced yogis who do acquire a lot of supernatural powers, supernormal powers. But I, what I have discovered is that for normal people, um, as long as you can keep yourself from believing that the, this, you know, let's call them psychic powers, um, although that's a, that's a term that has a lot of implications, but mm -hmm. that, you know, when we do spiritual practice, we gain a lot of abilities or we gain access to a lot of abilities which are very useful in daily life and these these can range as you know from uh, from a, a capacity to notice what's going on in your own body and 
even sometimes heal it uh, to um, insight into other people. You know, so there a lot of these these particular gifts that come with spiritual practice are uh, are awakenings of normal powers uh, that all human beings have and should have access to. And so that's what I emphasize. I emphasized the fact that through yoga, we come to know our deep capacities in ways that, uh, that you know, otherwise we, we generally don't. But, um, and, you know, we emphasized a lot the, the great Siddhi, which is self-realization mm-hmm. and, and all, its, all, its, uh, all its permutations. Well, that's great. Thanks for keeping it real. I'm glad I asked that question. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, the, the other thing about those uh, sections of the yoga sutras is most people just don't talk about them. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> let's, and I, let's skip that. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I don't know if you want to talk about uh, pedagogy here. No. Okay. Well, can. <laughs> um, well, the thing I discovered about studying this text is that, you know, first of all, the Yoga Sutra is not a popular text in today's times, and one reason is because it's seen as a, you know, as a text for renunciants and mm-hmm. basically professional meditators. Uh, so, in order to make it accessible to people, you really have to open it up and make it very, you know, daily life oriented. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you know, and if you do that, what you realize it is that it is an incredible cookbook for becoming familiar with different spiritual practices and modalities every one of which is powerful, you know, Mm. and the thing about studying texts like this as a spiritual practice is that it can often introduce you to aspects of of spiritual life that you wouldn't ordinarily think about and which, you know, can turn out to be tremendously helpful. So, uh, so that was what was exciting to me and I think to other people about studying that text is, you know, is, uh, and the other thing is, I wanted to talk more about modalities, but um, one of the one of the things that I've noticed about working with your own difficulties and with the difficulties in society through spiritual work is that there are several focal points, and that we are temperamental. We tend to be temperamentally drawn to one or another of them. Um, you know, f- so for instance. A lot of people in the contemporary spiritual world are tend to focus on awareness of awareness and witnessing and, you know, cultivating the capacity for seeing everything that's that's you're experiencing as arising inside awareness and gradually letting yourself be awareness, which I'm sure you also uh, experience as an mm-hmm. incredible right. I mean, it's a it's a very fundamental direct path practice and. And it's one of the best ways there is to keep yourself in some sort of balance when life is full of upheaval. Uh, so, uh, whereas there are other people, and you know, and, and I would say I'm one of them in general who focus on the heart and the you know they cultivate the energy of joy in the heart, and you know, look at being grounded in the heart as the uh, as really the basis for staying grounded in the rest of your life. And then there are those who who work with the lower belly, which is actually probably more grounding uh, than either of these other two centers. But one thing that I've found is really important in, you know, in living a life that's inwardly centered and outwardly 
active is to somehow keep a balance between these three centers. So, and to know, in a sense, which center to cultivate under different circumstances. Mm. So, you know, if you're interested in talking about that, uh, I can say a little bit about that, and I'd be very interested to know what your <laughs> uh, your your experience of this approach to practice is. Well, let's talk about it now. Then you talk about three centers. I want to hear what how how our listeners can use this. Uh, insight that you have about learning when to f cultivate or to uh, put attention on each of those three centers you mentioned. Okay, so, so one of the difficulties that people have when they're starting a spiritual journey and for quite a while in the spiritual journey is that we don't have full access to our inner energy body. Uh, so and partly that's, of course, because our our tendency is to uh, is to externalize our attention. You know, interiorizing attention is a, is something that we need to learn how to do. And uh, the the practice of mindfulness, you know, of paying attention to the breath and then noticing the types of thoughts that are coming up is seems to be these days the way. Uh, most people find easiest to, you know, to enter into some level of interiority. So there's a step past mindfulness where you actually begin to tune in to, to that, that aspect of your own mind, call it, that's, that's simply present to experience, which we generally call awareness and, you know, or the witness to, to be able to tune into that and you start by being mindful of the breath, mindful of the body, which means just focusing, concentrating. And you gradually become aware of what's, uh, what's aware of, you know, what, what, the, what that aspect of yourself that's, that's able to be mindful. Uh, and you, then you become aware that this aspect of yourself is present even when it's not focused on anything. And, you know, and gradually it starts to become possible to, to notice that there is a kind of field within, within which your experience is happening and that, it's, uh, and that it's both inside your body and outside your body. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would call, and that, that experience generally happens through the intellect, through, you know, or through what we call the, the head center or the third eye center. It's... It's very much an intellectually focused experience, although to call it intellectually focused is a bit yeah. misleading. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the the yoga concept of the intellect is a very different well, from very, our ordinary usage. But, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and uh, so by intellect, we don't mean, you know, that, you know, the, the part of you that ruminates and judges and gets ideas, but actually the part of you that is, that's able to, as it were, perceive without uh, emotional coloring, mm. and you know, and that's the faculty that that comes online as we, you know, when we practice mindfulness, and that we can, you know, we can sort of ride to the experience of what it is that's that's not only mindful, but that it, what it is that perceives and experiences our life. And uh, I'm I'm assuming that many of your listeners are familiar with this practice or with witness awareness. Um, 
but it's in my experience it is really the fail-safe method for for stepping back from upsetting things including those upsetting things that are coming you know that are coming up from within you your your past wounds your you know the, the feelings that get triggered by uh by events and other people and that mm-hmm. it, that the witness or you know this capacity to sort of step back take a backward step as i think it's adyashanti says just like come to the, come behind yourself and mm-hmm. then observe from there it saves you from a lot of you know tsuras and heartbreak uh and i you know it's and it's it's a it's an extremely important practice especially if you can do it without dissociating you know <laughs> not leaving your body and uh you know and mm-hmm. going into a kind of dissociated state uh and i would say for years and this may be true for you as well you know when when things got really rough in my life and on the outside and when i was you know feeling crazy my fail safe method for bringing myself back to some form of stability would be to remember the witness to go okay mm-hmm. who is it that knows i'm having this experience who is it that knows it's you know that this stuff is happening uh and that that just by asking the question and i know you're very familiar with this practice mm-hmm. yeah i would you know my there would be a sort of field ground shift and i would i would find myself positioned kind of behind my mind uh and you know if i could keep returning to that awareness uh it would you know awareness has this amazing quality of dissolving anything that it comes in contact with so if you can stay poised in awareness you start to notice that everything is coming and going arising and subsiding mm-hmm. including your sense including your own feelings and suddenly you become a great deal freer in that moment so it's a it's an unbelievably significant and important practice you know f- grounding practice mm-hmm. um so i i hope i've explained this well enough here oh very well but i sense a but coming up well the but it it yeah so <laughs> <laughs> the but um is that generally speaking awareness practice or witness practice uh it takes a long time before you recognize that there's actually a you know that there's love in it that there's an affective tenderness in it it's you know that eventually if you do enough awareness practice you you do realize that awareness is also love but so meditating in the heart meditating in the heart center then becomes the you know an, another one of those deep grounding practices except that when you when you begin to cultivate the heart center and i i'll say a little bit more about about the process if you like mm-hmm. um if you as you begin to cultivate the heart center several things happen one is that you do begin to become aware of the energy of the heart space which tends to be naturally uh the word i like is tender you know um sweet it sometimes has the flavor of compassion sometimes uh sometimes it's more energetically intense but it's natural it's natural quality is loving now that said and the glitch in heart center meditation uh is that your emotions are many of your emotions especially the wounding emotions are situated in you know kind of as layers around the energy of the heart so when you first begin tuning into the heart you're you're often going to come up with you know 
feelings of anger, feelings of grief, feelings of sadness, uh, they just come up, you know. And in my practice experience, especially in the early years when I was really trying to carve out a, a practice path for myself, I would notice that when I cultivated the heart center, there would be enormous joy and bliss that would arise, and also a lot of emotion, some of which mm. was pretty hard to handle. And then the, the practice of awareness of who is it that knows I'm feeling this became tremendously helpful. And there is something that I discovered about toggling between heart awareness and you know awareness of uh, awareness itself that has you know, that has I believe is the basic um, it's the basic what would you call it template hmm. for for you know genuine a genuine spiritual path that needs to connect the the awareness which is objective and the heart which is tender you know um, so that's what that's what I try to help my students cultivate. It's what I, I just, you know, it's what I cultivate. And mm -hmm. so many, there's so many yogic practices for, for working with these two centers, uh, you know, beyond the standard, who knows, I'm thinking, or, you know, let's say, placing a mantra in the heart, which is, of course, the classic way of beginning to open the heart. Mm. There's so many other practices that we can experiment with. And, you know, it, if there's time in your life and if you're interested, it's, it's kind of like you can begin once you have created an awareness of these centers. And I'll say something about the belly center in a, in a minute. No, you'll then, say it after our break. Oh, okay. <laughs> Do you want to complete that sentence first? So, so in the in the process of of you know experiencing the the radical importance of staying connected in both these centers, uh, you you learn how in every situation there's there's a practice or there's a, a way of thinking that will help you stay in balance. As long and, and this the, let me just say this one more thing before the break. As long as you have an inner body awareness, so so that's the clue is is um, staying close to your inner body, whether it's in the heart or in the awareness space. So okay. Good. Now we will have our unity break, and we'll be right back with Sally Kempton. Welcome back to Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times with your host, Phil Goldberg. Welcome back. We're here with Sally Kempton, and she was leading us uh, through some practices or ways to uh, uh, conceptualize witnessing awareness and being in what she calls heart awareness which to me sounds like a, a very good combination of sort of transcendence and being imminent in the world. Um, 
Now, you were also going to talk about a third energy center. Yeah, so <clears throat> the third energy center, which, um, of course, in martial arts is called the Hara, or the Lower Dantian in Chinese, is it's, I, I can, you know, if, you know, in my tradition, the ultimate reality is described as Sat Chit Ananda, being intelligence and blissfulness. Uh, and the, these three centers actually match that description. So if we can mm -hmm. say that, that the head center is the center of intelligence or awareness, the heart center is the center of bliss or love, the belly center is the center of being. And so if you can manage to ground yourself in the belly center, which is not that easy for most people because you know we're a society which tends to you know, kind of erupt upward into the mind. So getting mm -hmm. your attention to the heart is a big deal for many people. Getting your attention to the belly uh, is, you know, is, it, the belly is often a dark area for us. And, you know, and especially if you've had a standard yogic uh, spiritual education and told that the lower chakras are bad and that, you know, your mm -hmm. job is to get into the upper chakras, that to come to the point which... I don't know about you, but I, I after I think I must I've been doing spiritual practice for 15 years, when I became aware that my lower body, you know, from below the heart was pretty much numb, even mm. though I did yoga and took walks and stuff, and that and that I, it actually for for health, which is where I started, uh, you know, it it was really important to start ex you know exploring the belly and. Explore, actually exploring the three lower chakras. Uh, so, and of course, there's lots of schmutz in the lower chakras. But you keep using these Sanskrit terms like zuras and schmutz, Sally. Yes, I know. I can't help it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Should I provide a translation? <laughs> Please. Okay, so zuras means trouble. It's... Uh, <laughs> Pretty much the word for everything that's going on right now in the world, and uh, schmutz means all the accretions. What you know in yoga are called the impurities that, and and uh, difficult emotions that have been deposited in our energy system by, by you know all of our years of suffering and misunderstanding and you know the rest of of the downsides of human existence. I call it schmutz because it kind of it it forms a sort of barrier. Uh, that that actually makes it hard to experience that you know what Phil was very beautifully talking about in the beginning of the program, the un, the utterly unbroken true self, you know, which is not never bothered, never dies, and is a source of pure awareness and pure joy. But the schmutz blocks it, as we know. Uh, so <laughs> Just for for listeners. I was joking when I said those are Sanskrit terms. They're Yiddish, and Yiddish has this great quality of anamadapiya. It, it's yeah, the, it's the nama rupa, as they say, of, of Yiddish is, is great, and schmutz is one of those words. It means what it sounds like. And surus is pretty good, too. Yeah. <laughs> and what about shlemiel? Oh, boy. Yeah, so let's let's a shout out for <laughs> nearly defunct great great language of Yiddish. Um, but I'm a New Yorker, so 
in New so York. So am I. Right, so in New, York, in New York, even people who aren't Jewish know, know a few words in Yiddish. Um, yeah. So, uh, so belly center. Um, yes. So cultivating the belly center is, uh, it takes a while for many of us. Um, and I did, I did many years of, you know, certain Qigong practices where certain Qigong postures and breathing practices where you just try to get your breath down to the belly. And Mm -hmm. and then there's a point where you actually can feel your inner belly. And, uh, and when you can, it almost becomes, it becomes like a kind of cauldron within which you can offer your schmutz and it will in some mysterious way um, dissolve and transform it. And I guess the thing that I was, as I was thinking about you know, this conversation this morning, one of the things that occurs to me is that all of us as human beings, we need a place to deposit our pain you know, so that we can stop identifying with it, so that we can handle it. You know, certain certain kinds of emotional pain and physical pain are very, very difficult to endure, and often we can't make it go away. So, the you know, part of the job of spiritual practice is to give us a resting place where we can take ourselves when we are in pain, and almost offer the pain into that center. Uh, with the hope that our deeper self, the energies of our deeper self will rise up and assimilate and metabolize the pain. So, and I I found that for emotional pain, um, for, for the pain of, you know, your deep unprocessed tendencies, which come up from time to time, that if you can ground in the belly and take your seat there and really let yourself hold your discomfort in the belly as though you were holding it in a, a kind of a cauldron, uh, you know, or a warming pad, if that makes sense. You know, those old warming pans that you put coals in mm. and, and you would use them in, in old, olden times to warm a freezing cold bed in northern countries. Well, in a certain way, your hot emotions, your painful emotions, can be held at kind of in the container of awareness with your attention in the belly. And, and that this mysterious power that we have in our human consciousness will begin to dissolve, resolve, and basically metabolize discomfort. And of course, if it's... Uh, it, it, it's often necessary to just to do this again and again and again, but it really works. And over time, it uh, it does. You know, you find yourself after practicing in these three centers over a period of time. You know, you find that you you have the groundedness of the belly center. You know, which which is a kind of a wordless place. It's a lot easier to not engage in painful thoughts or, you know, distracting thoughts when you're centered in the belly. You have the heart center, which will activate your natural affection and compassion. You have the head center where you can become aware that that your true nature is pure awareness. 
and you can you know you can kind of segue between these aspects of yourself and and this actually will integrate parts of your being that often under normal circumstances remain out of touch with each other you know so so um phil do you have a Yes, no, I, I, I'm glad you used the word integrate because that, that's what was coming up for me as you described it. I, I thought this sounds like a very integrative way to look at these things. And I, just on a personal note, it gives uh, your description of, of the belly center, the dantian, it, it, it gives um, a little more clarity uh, from my own experience because I, you know, I'd been meditating regularly for I don't know how many thirty years or more, and then I started doing uh, taking uh, Tai Chi and Qigong classes, and I found it, you know, remarkably grounding to do that, and yeah. um, and I think you know this is a, a sort of good explanation for that. Um, I'm going to uh, segue now to to something I saw on your website. There's an article posted called Bouncing Back. Uh, you talk about, uh, um, to quote you, a deep, secret, and subtle kind of resilience. Now, resilience is obviously something that's much talked about these days. It's something we all need to cultivate, especially uh, when times are difficult, as, as they have been for all of us. Um, tell us about that, that special kind of resilience you're talking about well on uh you know resilience there's been a lot as you know there's been a lot of work done on resilience mm -hmm. and on the qualities that that make people who have difficult lives resilient and uh some of it's very helpful one of the things i've found and it's you can find that if you talk to resilient people you know people who've come through really really tough times uh is that you have to have a way of making meaning of your experience, which it which does not does not make you feel sorry for yourself, does not make you blame the world or God, but in somehow somehow, it's it's very important to to make your experience mean something that's growth producing. Uh, and you know, so for instance, um, one of the people that. I interviewed for that article and I ended up spending a lot of time talking to her about this quality because she to me really exemplifies resilience. It was a woman, she was like 18 and um, she was about to go to college and she was in a very bad car accident and she was and it it caused a lot of brain damage. You know, which I think for many people is like the worst nightmare, right? Mm -hmm. she, she couldn't she, she, in many ways, she couldn't function. She couldn't speak as well. Her cognition was damaged, and she had to bring herself back. I'm not sure she has ever fully brought herself back, but the meaning she made of it uh, was that this was an opportunity to look at her life from a completely different perspective. She'd been an intellectual. That was not a possible road for her, uh, and she had to become more in touch with her body and learn to work with her body in therapeutic ways for herself and that ultimately became a career so it's you know and it was all about for her the meaning that she made of the experience not my life is totally screwed but you know but what can i do to you know to make this mean something and to make this part of my growing to make this you know part of my 
of, of my happy life rather than of my tragic life. And I, I, so I do think that the meaning piece is really critical to resilience. And of course, we get back to Viktor Frankl on that mm-hmm. one. Um, and, you know, and I've, I've, uh, I actually was given a book about 10 years ago called With God in Hell, which was mm. about some of the Eastern European rabbis who, who were in the camps and a couple of them who were able to maintain a state of just enormous joy and compassion and helpfulness. Um, and it, it was all about that. It was all about, you know, what's my life about? I'm not going to abandon what my life is about. I'm just going to possibly have to find a different way of expressing it. So I do, I think that human beings are essentially creative. You know, it's, I, I feel that it's, this is one of the most intrinsic qualities in human beings. We're, we're, we're makers and doers and creators. So, and if we're not creating something positive, we're going to be creating something negative in our minds. I'm, I'm saying, you know, the mind is, is, is endlessly making stuff up. So, I, you know, I, I do find, and I, I'm, again, this is not something new, that it's why the yogic teaching about taking your, your mind really seriously and, and cultivating a way of holding thoughts so that they don't run you around in circles is uh, crucial. You know, so in resilience, you really have to take to, to be resilient. Um, that you have to have some way to face your mind when it's telling you that everything is hopeless and the situation is horrible and things are never going to get any better. Um, just to say something about my own relationship to the current state of the world at this time, you know, I, I like many other people, uh, I I was glued to to um, the media all during the Trump years and terrified about <laughs> the future of this country. And I apologize to people who have an opposite perspective. Uh, I, I'm sure you have your own version of what I'm about to say. <laughs> it's uh, and and I I really began to notice it was partly because of the pandemic, and I you know I was really addicted to the Times and the Washington Post, and I became, and then I started reading Axios and Politico, and and uh, and pretty soon my a good part of my morning was taken up with reading all the you know reading the editorials in all these news media and and taking in the the panic and the fear and the you know the um, the the anger everything else that was being expressed uh, and you know and I I think that we all as you know, as members of the planet, need to be sufficiently aware of all the problems that that are, you know, taking over the world and active in them to the degree that we're capable. And yet, learning how to keep the mind from getting lost in the drama of breakdown that you know is so easy to do, uh, you know, is is uh, one of the main. Um, practices for resilience. Well, I have to now say that I fully identify with what you just said. And in the uh, opening paragraph of the uh, preface to my book with the same title as this show, Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times, I cite a New Yorker cartoon where one character says to the other, 
my desire to be well informed is currently at odds with my desire to remain sane. <laughs> yes, precisely. <laughs> precisely. <laughs> Which is where we've we all find ourselves from time to time and and especially during turbulent years like the ones we've been through um now you you you, in that context you talk about making meaning yes um now in my experience uh that effort to make meaning of difficult uh, circumstances um can be tricky uh do you find people um in an effort to make meaning, uh, sink into denial or find the wrong meaning <laughs> or less less useful meaning. And and how do you help people find you know the right lessons in in these things? Well, that's a really interesting question because of course, all the conspiracy theories that are taking over actually come from people's need need and desire to make meaning. And uh, I've I've well, there's. I think one of the things that we can train ourselves in and hopefully help other people see is uh, is that perspective taking, I mean, the, the ability to, to actually look at situations from not only our perspective, but from the perspective of the others in the situation and also from a kind of witness perspective, is it, it will help you ask these questions. Um, you know, things like, is this really true? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that Byron Katie question, which, you know, she applies to, she asks us to apply to our own um, presuppositions, but you can also apply it to what you're hearing and reading. Is this really true? And, and, uh, and just, just allowing yourself to to question um, and when I say this I I know it's opening a big can of worms because the tendency to question is what's leading to anti-vax situations and all kinds of things that you know that are for better or worse uh, making it very difficult for people in this country at least to you know to feel united with each other and to feel that that you know that 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 we're members of the same country, the same tribe. But I do think we, we have to recognize that there are different perspectives and, that, and to learn how to put, our, put our, ourselves into other people's headspace so that at least we can understand that the meaning that we make for ourselves is not necessarily the only meaning and not even necessarily the correct meaning but but the meaning that we you know but we we do need to commit ourselves to lining up the meaning that we make with our own nature you know in other words it ha- it has to be true to ourselves and it has to be not harmful to others and mm. i i i think that that's a very good test like is do i feel that this is enhancing my my ability to know myself as I truly am, you know, is it is it enhancing my ability to take my journey in the most empowered way? Is it enhancing my ability to love people? And and is it is it not the kind of understanding which dismisses others, which puts others, 
you know, into, you know, into boxes that lets us, uh, you know, stop considering them fully human. In other words, is it not harmful? So there's a lot of inquiry mm -hmm. that, that we need to make when we're trying to understand how, how and why things are. And I would think you probably agree with me when I say um, talking this making meaning bit out with people who know us well yeah. is, is one of the ways to uh, protect ourselves from our own self-delusions and uh, other things. You also talk about in that article um, uh, the danger of, of processing uh, pain without getting hooked by our suffering. What do you mean by getting hooked? Uh, well, getting hooked to me means that we start to identify ourselves with our suffering self, you know, with, with what Eckhart Tolle memorably calls the pain body, um, which, can, which can be any... I mean, so just the thought, and I have this, I have this experience quite a lot. I mean, I, I work with this quite a lot because I have a, I've had a lot of health challenges for the last 20 years. And, you know, and finding the place where I'm not defining myself as a person with health challenges and yet at the same time taking care of my health mm. uh, has has really been it's like a very fine line. Right. Because uh, because thinking of yourself as sick or thinking of yourself, you know, as grief stricken because you've lost someone. None. Of, I mean, these things are true. You know, illness is real. It's not. It's not something we should be in denial of. Loss is real. It's not something we should be deni in denial of. But somehow we need to be able to experience it without being it, without becoming it. So, and I think that that is what, it's, again, it's one of the heart, it's, it's at the heart of resilience. You can let yourself experience very great difficulties if you can at the same time remember that there is that in you which doesn't change, which is holding it, which is witnessing it, which is in touch with, you know, with positive feelings that, you know, can direct compassion towards yourself, that can, that you have choice in how you feel about something, how you experience something, even if, even if the external experience is quite difficult. Excellent. Sally, we only have about a minute left. Um, I would invite you to uh, say anything uh, that you want to emphasize to our listeners. And al also, uh, do you see positive signs emerging from our collective uh, trauma of the pandemic? And uh, what lessons do you hope we learn? All that in one minute. All that in one minute. Well, I do see that, that there's a tremendous energy of making this society better. And I'm, I'm just talking from the perspective of the United States. I know that there is a lot going on in other places in the world, but you know, that the energy of, uh, of more equality, more, um, you know, more valuing different people's um, perspectives is very strong now, you know, and and I think that that is the result of the pandemic. It's, it's, you know, it's the result of the crisis. I have no idea if we're going to be able to carry it through. Mm. Um, but it's, it's very hopeful that we're trying. You know, so, and I'm talking about the external situation. 
I would. I think it's too soon to tell what the emotional effects of the pandemic have been. Um, but I would say that facing the possibility of death is good for everybody. You know, <laughs> it just makes us more real about our lives. It makes us look at what we value. And and uh, if we can hold that awareness that that we're not immortal, that that death is going to come to us, and therefore. How do we make our lives valuable? How do we use our time? How do we take responsibility for our own experience? Is uh, it's one of the great lessons of the pandemic. And I, again, I, I, my hope is that that more and more people get that. I hope so too. And um, we have no time left. Listeners, you can uh, keep learning from Sally by going to her website, sallykempton.com. You'll find a ton of really good information, including uh, many audio courses uh, and, and other uh, resources. And be sure to join me again next week. We'll have another wise and wonderful guest. You can find me at my website, philipgoldberg.com. Sign up for my mailings and all the other work I do, read my books and so forth. And also peruse the archive of the other website that I co-host, Spirit Matters. You'll find a few hundred great interviews with people like Sally and others. So in the meantime, be well, be strong, be safe, and thanks for listening. 